Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 69, Revelation, Conquering and to Conquer. And in this episode, we're going to jump into Revelation chapter 6 and observe as the Lamb begins to break each of the seven seals and what transpires as a result. And so this, of course, is where lots of the fantastic imagery begins to really take shape. And you're going to see what I mean by that if you've not yet been very familiar with Revelation chapter 6. Hold on to your seats. We're going to jump right in. And this particular episode, we're going to focus in a little bit as well about what it means to conquer and what we think is going on with this rider on the white horse in the first few verses of chapter 6. So I'm really looking forward to this episode. I think it'll help us continue to tie some themes together as we go forward. And I think you're really going to grow to appreciate um, the perspective that we talk about here. So let's get right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 6, and this will help us get started on what I want to talk about today. Here's what it says. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, as we transition in really into this next section of the book, the images that John puts before us, um, they come fast and they come furious. Everything seems to be blown up to cosmic proportions, and that assessment would be accurate. Everything is blown up to cosmic proportions, and this is one of the main reasons why I inserted episode 42, Uh, revelation shaking the heavens into the podcast. And one of the points I made in the introduction to that podcast was that the thrust of the book of Revelation is on how God intends to replace the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. One kingdom is being shaken and a new one is being set up in its place. And so the language that Jesus uses when he describes this shaking was certainly cosmic in scope. Listen to Luke 21, 25, and 26. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
And as I reminded you in episode 42, the heavens and the earth are connected. And when the kingdom of the heavens invades the kingdom of the earth, there will be a whole lot of shaking going on. Those things that are not rooted in Jesus's unshakable kingdom will be brought to an end. And so to further illustrate this point, all throughout the book of Revelation, earthquakes and thunder and lightning and hail appear repeatedly at significant places, places where another feature of this shaking is taking place. And this is actually what we find as we begin chapter 6. Now, this chapter, the, the few verses that I just read to you a moment ago, they introduce us to the seven seals that are found on the scroll. And if you remember from Revelation 5, there is a scroll in the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne. And John was searching for one who would be worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And these seals are simply the way that letters of pertinent information would be rolled up in a scroll of some type and then wax would be dripped over the, those, that, fold, that final folded edge and it would be um, imprinted with a signet ring. And when that wax dried, it would keep the scroll closed and the contents, whatever happened to be written on that scroll, wouldn't be revealed to anyone until those seals were broken. And we're just told that there are seven of them on there. And so it is important to realize as we begin looking at these horses and these riders on these horses and what they do and what they say, it's important to recognize that these seals are not the content of the scroll. So the lamb was found worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals, but we don't yet know what the scroll says. Um, the seals first need to be broken in order to find out what's inside. The content of the scroll, which we won't discover until Revelation chapter 11, is the mysterious explanation of how God's kingdom will fully come to earth. The seals issue from the throne of God, specifically from the Lamb himself who is in the midst of the throne, and from the living creatures that are in his presence. And what they describe are the types of things that result from one kingdom imposing its will onto another kingdom. In Revelation 6, specifically, we see conquest leading to bloodshed, leading to famine, leading to death. But when we approach this first seal and see a rider on a white horse conquering, we are encouraged to ask how it is that we think God's kingdom is going to fully come to the earth. Will his kingdom come in the same way that other kingdoms seek to advance their own kingdoms? So, you know, and as we've talked about before, Revelation answers this question with images, pictures, and visions of beauty and grandeur, but also with images, pictures, and visions of ugliness and destruction that allow you and allow me to see, feel, and experience the realities they portray. Different colored horses and riders with different roles offer us the experience we're looking for. And what we have to keep in mind as we work our way through the book of Revelation is that it communicates through recurring themes or possibly by asking subtle questions that are asked and then later answered or through images that we are introduced to with little to no explanation offered only to find that explanation several chapters later. So you and I have to read closely looking for these themes that surface. And this means that we might have to read multiple chapters with these ideas in mind in order to come to a settled understanding of what they mean. And so we need to read Revelation in a way that's faithful 
to the apocalyptic literature that it is. And as Eugene Boring says in his commentary on Revelation, the language of Revelation is visionary language that deals in pictures rather than propositions. Pictures themselves are important to John as the vehicle of his message. They are not mere illustrations of something that could be said more directly. And I think that's incredibly helpful. It's very insightful. And so you and I need to pay attention to the pictures. We need to pay attention to the colors. There are colors on each of these horses. There are numbers. Um, We see seven of these seals, and we were going to look at the first few of them today, and as well as the feelings generated by the way these things are described. And so when we come to this first seal, we see a white horse with a rider on the horse holding a bow and wearing a crown who comes out conquering and to conquer. And that ends verse 2 of Revelation 6, and that is in fact where I've taken the title for this episode, Conquering and to Conquer. If that sounded a little funny to you when you first heard the title, it might make more sense read in the context of that verse. Now, this isn't the first time that we've come across the word conquer. And it would seem interesting that we address this with each of the letters to the seven churches, that each of them were commissioned and exhorted to conquer. And as we saw in a few episodes ago, that when the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, he is now worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. And John is excited about this. He turns to look to see this conquering lion. And what does he see? He sees a slain lamb. In fact, as we've been discussing over the past several weeks, this is in fact how Jesus conquered. This is how Jesus was victorious over sin and death and the curse was that he allowed death and sin to overtake him and put them to death. And when he was raised from the grave on the third day, he was victorious over all of these things. And so what we have in Revelation 6 is we have the fact that this vision John's just received of a conquering lamb and the one seated on the throne surrounded by the four living creatures and the 24 elders and myriads of myriads of angels and worshipers from in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them offering worship and praise to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb. We are now faced with if this heavenly kingdom If this heavenly reality that was brought about through the self-sacrificial, compassionate, dying for one's enemy's love of the Lamb, if that kingdom has come to bear in this earth, how will the contents of the scroll, which is God's unfolding plan for how he is both going to judge and save the world, what will transpire when the beginnings of that, the, the content, is starting to be opened. And that's what we see happen from Revelation chapter 6 in these seals. And in verse 2, we're told that we see a, a horse who comes with a rider on him, and the horse happens to be white. Now, I have looked through a numerous commentaries, and it's interesting because in Revelation 19, just by way of a little spoiler, um, there is a rider on a white horse, and he is unequivocally Jesus. And we'll get to that when we come to Revelation 19. And so I have read a handful of commentators who said because there's a white horse who appears later in the book and there's a rider on this horse and the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19 is Jesus, the the rider on the white horse here also needs to be Jesus. 
And then I've read a handful of other commentators who look at this horse and see that based upon the things that this rider is doing or this rider is bringing into the world, um, it can't be Jesus. And so back and forth, um, some of these individuals go. And I remember thinking to myself, I've got to come up with an answer to this question. I've got to decide within myself, um, you know, who is this? How do we know? And it was interesting as I began to read through it, um, if you look at the first four seals, and the reason I only read the first four is because typically the seals and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, they always are paired in these groupings of four and then three and four and then three. And you're going to see that as we work our way through the book, and I'll have plenty more to say about that later. But the first four seals go together and seal number five is something incredibly different. It's entirely different from the first four, and so we'll address that later. But in the first four seals, if you pay close attention to what is happening, you first see a rider on a white horse who was given a crown, who was given a bow, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, it's interesting that there's our word for conquer, that we know the, that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And so you might be tempted to think, hey, here's a rider on a white horse who is conquering. Could this potentially be Jesus? And you, you might have that. Let, let's just hold that thought for just a second, because if you follow the trajectory of the four horses, you kind of get a picture that's painted. And I know people tend to think, oh my goodness, is this some futuristic thing? These, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and good grief if there are not some fantastical ideas and images portrayed. I mean, even in current politics right now, it's sad, um, but, but some people are, are accusing um, some of the, uh, the candidates running, you know, for various p positions of office as being, you know, these four horsewomen of the apocalypse and things of that nature. And it, it kind of gets ugly and it gets messy, but people generally want to view these things as some futuristic, literal, destructive things. But I want you to just read through it. Remember, we're talking about colors, we're talking about pictures, we're talking about feelings associated with these things. But if you look at the first horse, it is white. And its rider is given a bow and a crown. So a crown is sort of like kingly. You know, the church in Smyrna was offered a crown of life if those Christians were able to conquer and overcome and remain faithful to Jesus despite the threat of death. The second seal is um, opened and the horse is bright red. And this rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And so you have in the first horse, white, you know, victory, conquering. So he's given a bow and a crown was given to him. Typically kings are the ones who conquer. And so what you have in, in the first seal is you have conquest. Um, you've got a rider on a white horse, and this is precisely what he's interested in doing. Um, you have conquest, and yet that leads invariably to bloodshed. And you see it. It appears as the horse who is in red. And his rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And as we said, when kingdoms collide in this world, no matter what kingdoms they happen to be, this is the result. The kings lead the people in battle. They go to war. They go to, toward conquest. And when conquest takes place, blood is shed. 
Which interestingly enough, in verse five, tells us that the third seal was opened and he looked and he saw a black horse and his rider had a pair of scales in his hand and he heard what appeared to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Well, this too is something that you and I see when we notice world history and that is that conquest leads very directly to bloodshed which when those lives are lost, leads to famine. What's interesting about the four seals, and I love the way that Tim Mackey in the Bible Project videos um, puts this, but he said these four seals describe a tragically average day in human history. If conquest leading to bloodshed, leading to famine wasn't bad enough, when the fourth seal is opened, he sees the fourth horse. It is pale and its writer's name was Death, and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So the fourth horse is death. And this is precisely what happens when kingdoms collide with one another. These are the beginning stages of God's unfolding plan for redemption and how he hopes to both judge and save the world. But will his kingdom come in the same way that other kingdoms come? That's a question that I think is very, very important, particularly as we focus in on the word conquer. Because what I said about reading Revelation across multiple chapters is really significant. Because what I want to show you throughout Revelation is that there are actually a handful of trajectories that go straight from these opening verses in chapter 6 right on through the remainder of the book. And the first thing that I want to point out to you is that there is conquest that happens in the book of Revelation, which leads to bloodshed, which leads to famine, and which ultimately leads to death. And sadly, this is a tragically average day in the history of our world. Things like wars and bloodshed and famine and death occurred during the Roman Empire in the first century. They are occurring now in various parts of our world, and they will continue to occur all over the world. The fact that the first writer is often assumed to be Christ actually sets up the reader to discover how it is that he or she assumes God's kingdom will fully come to the earth. And just so that you are able to track with me, um, I just kind of want to step out of Revelation for just a second, and I want to step into the world that you and I know. Today, in our world, it is tragically average day in human history that wars and conquests leads to bloodshed, which leads to famine, which leads to death. That is tragic. It's very sad, but it's very normal. You and I don't know much of our own history apart from war. Our country went to war, has had multiple wars. Rome experienced many wars. Virtually every nation that becomes a nation has to fight to break away from the nation that it was once a part of in order to establish its own. War is something that is so inundated into our culture that we hardly know a world without it. And yet I think it's really important for you to know kind of the perspective that I'm coming from because one of the biggest troubles I see in our world 
is when the Christian perspective, when the perspective that claims to have God's support and God's backing also has the same view of war and its willingness to participate in war as every other nation in the world, I personally see a conflict there. I see a conflict between the way that the lamb absorbed death into himself and allowed his own blood to be shed as opposed to shedding the blood of others, that it really bothers me that there are whole groups of Christians who think that Christians going to war and killing, that there's a good time and a place for that, and that God is is in support of the wars and that should be called upon to, you know, go to fight with us and for us. But I, I actually am going to go back as far back as, as I think we need to go to sort of get a handle on this. And that would be to go back to the days of Constantine, who was the emperor um, in Rome, you know, around 312 AD, so about 300 years after Jesus. Um, the church had been experiencing persecution, as you know, if you've read through the New Testament, even as far as to the book of Revelation, there are churches that are suffering under Roman rule, Roman oppression. This is the story of the time when Rome actually became the official, or Christianity rather, became the official state religion of Rome. And for this reason, there were many people in the 3rd and 4th century who struggled over whether or not they wanted to allow Revelation as a book to be included in the Bible because of the violent way in which it opposed Rome. Of course, at the time that Rome became Christian, here's how the story is told. And um, I just wanted to share this with you because it's very relevant to the topic of this particular podcast. But the historian Eusebius... um, who actually knew Constantine and said that he had heard this particular recounting of the story from Constantine himself. This is the way the story goes. Constantine um, was a pagan monotheist. He was a devotee of the sun god Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. However, uh, before the Milvian Bridge battle, he and his army saw a cross of light in the sky above the sun with the words in Greek that are generally translated into Latin as in hoc signo winces. Translated into English is in this sign, conquer. Now that night, Constantine had a dream in which Christ told him he should use the sign of the cross against his enemies. He was so impressed that he had the Christian symbol marked on his soldiers' shields And when the Milvian Bridge battle gave him an overwhelming victory, he attributed it to the God of the Christians. This is the narrative, the story, as it is mostly recounted. I looked through a handful of resources. I got this from historytoday.com, which I don't know if it's the best use there, but this is the fourth or fifth reference that I have gotten. Um, In hoke, signo wing case, in this sign, conquer. And I want to paint for you just an interesting description for this because we've been looking at this word conquer as it appears in the book of Revelation. 
And what appeared as the first few chapters of the, to those who conquer, we will grant to eat of the tree of life. And to those who conquer, I will give him the crown of life. And to those who conquer, I will, you know, allow him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You can imagine all sorts of ideas about what it means to conquer. But when you come to Revelation chapter five, we get the word conquer reinterpreted. We get the word conquer that in this sign of the cross, in this sign of the lion and the lamb, the idea of conquering is much less to do with shedding the blood of my enemies and much more to do with Christ's shedding of his own blood. And so what's incredibly interesting is, let's assume for just a moment that the story that Constantine recounted to Eusebius was actually correct. Let's assume that there really was the sign of the cross in the sky and the words in hoax signo wing case in this sign conquer, what might that have actually meant according to the way Revelation describes the word conquer? Well, it might have meant exactly how Constantine took it. It might have been to go conquer your enemies the way the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 conquers his, and that is through bloodshed, through famine, and through death. Or you could translate it the way Revelation 5 interprets it in this sign, conquer, and that is that when you are truly expanding the kingdom of God in this world, you lay down your life for your enemies. What's fascinating about this is that from this moment on, the church, the Christians, now began to see the sword as something that they could take up and use for their own benefit. And I want to read you a section from the book, The Myth of a Christian Religion, in one of Greg Boyd's chapters called Christ and Caesar. And I just want you to listen to these words. He will reference again this Constantine sign of the cross. And I want you to follow the argument as Greg Boyd presents it. It started with Jesus. The devil offered Jesus all the authority and splendor of the kingdoms of the world, claiming that it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. It was a genuine temptation. Think of all the good things Jesus could have accomplished had he become Caesar over the whole world. He could have immediately put in place all the wisest and most just laws. The painful oppression of his own people could have instantly been brought to an end. He could have ended world hunger. He could have commanded an end to bloodshed around the world. Jesus came to win all the kingdoms of the world and alleviate suffering and oppression but he didn't come to do it that way. So he resisted the temptation to grab Caesar-like power and chose instead to be faithful to his father's call to exercise Calvary-like power. He was certainly going to win the kingdoms of the world, but he was going to do it through the slow, impractical, painful route of Calvary. During the church's first three centuries, Jesus' followers imitated, for the most part, his beautiful example. They resisted the devil's temptation to grasp power over others, even when it would have been practical for them to do so. Most wouldn't serve in the government or in the military 
because they believed this was incompatible with a humble, Calvary-like lifestyle. These early Christians kept the kingdom holy not by buying into the values of the empire and by being willing to suffer and die. I'm sorry, these early Christians kept the kingdom holy by not buying into the values of the empire and by being willing to suffer and even die rather than engage in violent self-defense. Unfortunately, this came to an abrupt end in the 4th century. In AD 312, the Emperor Constantine allegedly had a vision, which he believed was from God, that told him to fight an important upcoming battle under the banner of the Christ. It was the first time Christ's name was invoked in the cause of violence. But unfortunately, it would not be the last. Constantine won the battle and claimed to become a Christian. He immediately legalized Christianity, and before the end of the century, it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. For the first time, the church was given access to the power of the sword. Rather than viewing this new sword power as Jesus did, that is, as a temptation of the devil that needed to be resisted, influential church leaders like Eusebius and St. Augustine saw it as a blessing from God. Instead of remaining faithful to the way of the cross, many church leaders chose to embrace the practical way of the sword. If God has given us Christians the power of the sword, Augustine reasoned, we have a responsibility to use it to advance his cause, as if God's cause could ever be advanced by such means. On one level, there's nothing new in this line of reasoning. Pagans throughout history have equated military power with divine favor. What was shockingly new, however, is that Jesus' own followers now thought this way. Once the church acquired power over others, everything changed. A movement that began by viewing the acquisition of political and military power as a satanic temptation now viewed it as a divine blessing. A movement that was birthed by Christ refusing to conquer his enemies in order to die for them now set out to conquer enemies for Christ. The faith that previously motivated people to trust in the power of the cross now inspired them to trust in the power of the sword. Those who had previously understood that their job was to serve the world now aspire to rule it. The community that once pointed to their love for enemies and refusal to engage in violence as proof of Christ's lordship now pointed to their ability to violently defeat enemies as proof of Christ's lordship. And I would like to submit to you that this is one of the most tragic things that the church has bought into. It has led to more trouble, more oppression, more hypocrisy, more senseless death than Jesus ever intended for his people to embrace. Now, taking what we know of the way worldly kingdoms tend to conquer and the way that the Lamb has chosen to conquer does in fact set us on two separate trajectories. We looked in Revelation 6 as we follow the colors of the horses that the conquest, the kind of conquering done by these world systems, which very well may be in a sense part of the shaking of the heavens and shaking of the earth and kingdoms being rattled because of the things that Jesus has done. We see that it goes from conquest to bloodshed to famine and to death. 
But I want you to focus in on the way that Revelation 5 describes the Lamb conquering. And let's take what we see from Revelation 5, and I would like to read through to a passage in Revelation 7, which paints a very different picture. Because if the conquest coming from the kingdoms of this world leads to bloodshed, which leads to famine and leads to death, how fascinating is it to consider that the Lamb's conquest also leads to bloodshed, however, it's his own blood, which then leads to hunger being satisfied, which then leads to life. Listen to this passage from Revelation chapter 7, 14 to 17. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." This is the trajectory that Revelation 7, which is again the very next chapter in the book, paints for us a very different reality for people who are also caught up in conquest and bloodshed, only when it's the bloodshed of the Lamb within the kingdom of God. Instead of facing famine and death, they face their hunger being no more, their thirst being quenched, and the lamb as their shepherd, guiding them to springs of living water. Remember, Revelation speaks in pictures. It speaks in images. It speaks of themes that are now showing us a very different trajectory, both of conquest and both of bloodshed. But when bloodshed is the blood of others, when blood is the shed of the blood of your enemies, it leads to famine and that leads to death. But when it is the bloodshed of oneself, the lamb, or the followers of the lamb, that leads to people's hunger being satisfied and resulting in life. And so even the way the book of Revelation will proceed to use the word conquer, it will be in one of these two senses. And it will require a little bit of thinking on our part to determine which is which. Let me give you a couple of examples. Revelation eleven seven, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Very next chapter, Revelation 12, verse 11. And they, the faithful, have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Revelation 13, the beast opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Revelation 15 says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. 
And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Revelation 17, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And then in Revelation 21, we say, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You see, what's really, really fascinating about this concept of conquering is, as Richard Bauckham says in his book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation, the point is not that the beast and the Christians each win some victories. Rather, the same event, the martyrdom of Christians, is described both as the beast's victory over them and as their victory over the beast. This is what Revelation is doing. This is the genius of apocalyptic literature. And this is the genius of the book of Revelation. The idea here is not that God's kingdom is to come simply by saving a people who acknowledge God's rule from a rebellious world over which his kingdom prevails merely by extinguishing the rebels. It comes as the sacrificial witness of the people who already acknowledge God's rule, bring the rebellious nations also to acknowledge his rule. The people of God have been redeemed from all the nations in order to bear prophetic witness to all the nations. This is how Revelation intends for you and I to interpret the words conquering and to conquer. It is, as I've now shared throughout this entire episode, my belief that this particular rider on the white horse as the first seal is open is not Christ. Because the type of conquering and conquest that this rider sends forth is not coming to bring life and to bring hunger being satisfied as a result of shedding its own blood. These horses are unleashing hell on the earth and they have been doing so throughout the course of world history. Again, we are dealing with kingdoms that are colliding. And when one kingdom is threatened by the presence of another kingdom, that typical kingdom's threats result in them wanting to fight about it. They go to war. And yet when this happens, as is happening in our world right now, people lose their lives. People suffer. And this is not God's intentions for the world. He loves the world. And he wants to save everyone because he truly sent Jesus and the lamb sacrificed truly for every tribe and language and people and nation. He wants to unite them all together to make them a kingdom and priests to our God so that they all may reign on the earth. And of course, we've been looking at throughout this entire podcast on just what it does it mean to rule. And we are seeing it come to full light with Jesus. And so as we wrap up this particular week in the podcast, I'm just thankful that you're continuing to listen in. Um, I'd love to hear what you think about this idea with conquering. And now these two trajectories and the direction that they are going to take us as readers, as listeners in the book of Revelation. But it's important to realize that these things are happening all around us. 
And so I would love to hear from you. I would love to see where in your own life you see Jesus proving himself faithful and granting you victory over places where you need to see him at work and are excited to see him working. I would also love to hear about uh, questions that you have as you're continuing to listen through the podcast. But um, that's all the time we're going to take for this particular episode. And I will see you next week and we'll talk next week on the podcast. Have a great week.